0: Hello Vancouver and welcome to the Canucks Hour. It's, I'm Thomas Drance and I'm flying solo today. Jamie Dodd off for the first few days of the week. The Canucks Hour of course is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win. For years to come with fuel efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.com for more information. Alright, it's a solo show. A one man... Podcast on the radio. With me, your f- least favorite probably, maybe your favorite, uh, Canucks talking head in this city. We're going to open up the mailbag. I've been pooling submissions on Twitter already. If you'd like to ask me a question, any Canucks question, whatever you'd like, you can tweet at me, at Thomas Drance, or, or you can use the dumb, Dunbar Lumber tongue twister of a of a text line. 650-650, uh, and I will be... Looking through the inbox and asking questions from there, too. Uh, Faber is not producing, by the way, Chef Swagger. Uh, I've got Eddie. I've got Eddie on the uh, on the mic. He's uh, riding shotgun with me today. I don't think he has any devastating Leafs clips to run uh, no, to don't. embarrass me. Thank no. goodness. All right. So let's start out with Taj 1944, right? The, the old agenda setter wanted to know how devastated I was by the Leafs defeat um, in Vancouver on Saturday. Not at all. Not not remotely. I enjoyed the game. It was a great game. I thought it was a really good atmosphere at Rogers Arena. Um, I thought Demko put in a special performance, right? The type of performance you're hoping for every time you go to see professional athletes play live. Demko, full value. And then, look, it was a, it was a good night out for everyone there. Uh, it's always a fun energy when the Leafs are in town. There were a lot of dueling chants in the building. And I actually thought, despite the amount of shots, despite what the shot count looked like, and despite what the analytics looked like, that the Canucks played pretty well. I actually think the numbers, the raw numbers, undervalue how well and how disciplined the Canucks were in executing their overall game plan. They got out to an early lead, and they got out to an early lead thanks to a power play goal, right? A really smart half-slapper from Oliver ekman Larson that Brock Besser was able to pounce on. Love that. and And a really smart counter... From the JT Miller, Bo Horvat, Brock Besser, New Look top line, I I love that line. I thought that line played exceptionally well, considering how often they were without the puck, right? It wasn't like they were having heavy shift after heavy shift. In fact, they were weathering heavy shift after heavy shift. But I actually thought they kind of controlled the game without the puck. I thought almost every opportunity they had to just make the safe play and get it out, they took. They managed to win the battles they needed to clear the zone. And when possible, and, and it happened a lot, because... Although the Canucks goalied the Maple Leafs, I actually thought Jacob Mrazik was really good. Uh, The Canucks, and especially that line, were able to generate some of those Jose Mourinho chances against the grain. Uh, The Canucks parked the bus, and it worked. Now, my bigger takeaway, though, right, big picture takeaway, when the Canucks beat an elite team, that's what it looks like, right? The Canucks have the Leafs in town, and that's what it looks like. The Canucks have the Panthers in town. They don't win that game, but that's kind of what it looks like. If the Canucks had bounced out to an early lead against the Panthers, that's what it would have looked like. Um, extend that to Carolina. Extend that to whomever you want that's an elite top-end team with a Stanley Cup ch- chance. Think about Vegas and the bubble. That's what it would have looked like. If they took a 2-0 lead against Colorado or Vegas... That's what it would have looked like. And you can play well when you've got Thatcher Demko in front of Thatcher Demko. You can play possum. You can park the bus. You can hit teams on the counter. You can play with discipline. But if you're not controlling games at all, at all, against elite teams, then you're not good enough, right? And and here's what's interesting to me. Bruce Boudreau had a comment about Jack Rathbone earlier this week about how the Canucks need to prioritize defensive play. In making personnel decisions. And that was one of the reasons why Jack Rathbone continues to play at the American League level. Where he was the AHL Player of the Week for last week. Uh, Pretty good. Not, Not bad. And yet, he's not up. Because the Canucks know right now. As they try and limp along in this playoff race. You can't see me, but I might as well put scare quotes around that. Because I don't really think the Canucks are in a playoff race. To be totally honest with you. But while they're superficially in a playoff race the Canucks' best chance is to rely on their 5-on-5 defensive play, right? And limit goals against. Rely on Thatcher Demko. Play safe, responsible hockey in front of Thatcher Demko. And if you get outshot massively, you get outshot massively. That's why Jack Rathbone's not in the lineup. That's why the Canucks executed the type of game plan that they executed against the Maple Leafs. And by the way, that game plan, that way of winning games, that's a that's a practical decision that a very good NHL coach in Bruce Boudreau has made looking up and down this lineup and being like, that's my best chance to win. Well, you know what? That's the same decision that the previous head coach looked up and down this lineup and made, and made, right? So we've now got multiple different coaches looking at this team and being like, well, if I'm going to scrape away every point I can, this is how we're going to have to win. Try and be opportunistic on special teams, try and get the early lead, and then lean on our goaltender. Sheldon Keefe said it post-game too. Leafs coach Sheldon Keefe said, That's a team that relies on world-class goaltending to get wins. And they do. We know this. So as I watch that game and as I consider what it means in the big picture, right, you're seeing, in fact, the same types of criticism that I have made about the personnel on this lineup. They're not good enough to win. They're not good enough at the moment as constructed. You're seeing that same judgment in the personnel and tactical decisions being made by the current head coach, even as he blasted the media for sort of criticizing the loss because the team got outshot. Something which, by the way, I don't think is fair, because I actually think they played pretty well. So, just worth noting, right? If you want, like, if you want the type of team where you control play, where you're really good, where you have a shot, and then people look at your outrageously good goaltender in back and say, wow, after all of that, they also have that guy. That's unfair, a la Tampa Bay. Then you need to improve the lineup. Otherwise, you can maybe toughen up and and try and win like the Rangers or or the Nashville Predators. And sure, you might make the playoffs here and there, but you're not going to have the type of sustained success that ultimately we want to see in this city and that I'll always be advocating for. So that's my long-winded answer to that. (laughs) All right. Let's get on to a next question. I really liked one that I got about the Toffoli trade. And, of course, if you missed it, Tyler Toffoli was dealt today from Montreal to the Calgary Flames. Who else? The Calgary Flames now have four of the five pending or, like, unrestricted free agents who were major contributors for the 2019-20 Canucks. They no longer have Josh Levo, but he played for them since that season. Tanev, Markstrom, now Toffoli. They just need to go get Troy Stetcher, although he doesn't quite seem like a Daryl Sutter defenseman to me, um, considering the good Branson-Zadorov third pair that, that Sutter loves in Calgary. So, uh, not holding my breath on that one, but nonetheless, the Calgary Flames got another one of our guys, as they like to say on Twitter. So anyway, Tyler Toffoli acquired from the Montreal Canadiens by the division-leading Calgary Flames. And don't go look at the standings and say that it's actually Vegas-leading By point percentage, Calgary Flames, number one in the division. I'm going to be very disciplined about using that to talk about the standings for the rest of the season because it's ridiculous, especially after a 2019-20 campaign which was cut short and which the NHL used point percentage, not actual standings – not the actual standings to determine where teams ranked, right – they used point percentage. That's how the NHL standing should be talked about. Calgary's number one in the Pacific. The idea of catching Calgary is as ridiculous as the idea of catching Vegas. Stop it. Vegas needs to catch Calgary. Anyway, Montreal acquired Tyler Toffoli. Or sorry, Montreal traded Tyler Toffoli to the Calgary Flames. In exchange for Tyler Pitlick, who's a uh, you know, useful, high energy, bottom six guy with some injury concerns. Relatively high cap hit. Uh, Emil Haneman, who has been dealt twice. Uh, he's only 20 years old. This is going to be his third organization. A fifth round pick in 2023. A conditional fourth round pick um, in 2024. And this conditional pick. Now, the conditional pick on the fourth rounder is tied to the first round conditions that were swapped from Montreal to Calgary. So, M- Calgary has uh, traded their first round pick, however... It's top 10 protected. So in the event that Calgary in this knife fight Pacific division were to fall out of the playoff picture and then presumably win a lottery, because at the moment anyway, it looks like if Calgary is going to miss the playoffs, they're going to miss the playoffs and be like the 14th best, worst team in hockey. So very hard to see how the pick confers to 2023, but it could. In the event that Calgary somehow managed to gas job the balance of the season, miss the playoffs land a pick that ends up in the top 10, they would keep it for the 2022 draft and have the first round pick convert unprotected to the next year for the Montreal Canadiens. And when that happens, the Montreal Canadiens would then also get an additional fourth round pick. So that's the condition on the other fourth round pick. Now, I talk about this because I've talked a lot about the idea of what the Canucks should target in the event that they do decide to sell and they should decide to sell. Ahead of the March 21st deadline. Which, by the way, uh, ladies and gentlemen, exactly five weeks out today. Happy Valentine's Day to all our listeners. But also, if you love trades, this is trade season. We're now in the NHL silly season. Only five weeks away, to the day, from the March 21st NHL trade deadline. And there's nothing I think the Canucks should pursue as aggressively, should they decide to trade, as protected first-round picks. Like, protected first-round picks that confer confer potentially years down the line, but obviously ideally as an unprotected pick in 2023. And the reason for this is that those are the picks that, when you get lucky, right, when you bet against the right team, as the Colorado Avalanche did when they bet against the Ottawa Senators in the Matt Duchesne-Kyle tourist transaction, as the... Boston Bruins did when they bet against Phil Kessel in, in the trade that ended up netting them Dougie Hamilton and Tyler Sagan, as the uh, Ottawa Senators did when they made the Carlson trade and ended up landing Tim Stutzla, or, or uh, quite notably, as the—oh, there's one more good example, but it's it's escaping my mind at the moment, but I like to bring it up a lot. Oh, anyway, the Chicago Blackhawks have already screwed this up. The Columbus Blue Jackets already got this draft pick, because here's what's amazing, right? Right? When you look at the teams that have traded their first round picks to this point in the 2022 NHL entry draft, just as an instructive way of sort of gauging this, the Calgary Flames are really good. They've dealt their first round pick. No big deal. Probably in the 20s, right? The Florida Panthers have dealt their first round draft pick. It landed them Sam Reinhart. They parted with a first round pick in addition to Devon Levy, who is incredible. And no big deal. The Florida Panthers are an absolute buzzsaw. The... Vegas Golden Knights also traded their first-round draft pick to get Jack Eichel. Uh, We haven't even seen Jack Eichel play for the Vegas Golden Knights, who are second in the Pacific, no matter what the standings say. Um, But that's well worthwhile, well (laughs) worthwhile for the Vegas Golden Knights. Those teams knew who they were, right? And, they and I mean, Calgary knows who they are, but also protected themselves in making the deal. No big deal if you're trading a pick in the 20s. because you're in your contention window, you're never going to hear a line of criticism from me. In fact, that's what built the Rams' Super Bowl team. The team you just saw win the Super Bowl never makes first-round picks, ever. They, they crush them all. Uh, Les Sneed does it as a matter of habit. It worked for them. They finally delivered a Super Bowl. Uh, and, of course, th- it was their second appearance in the last five years. So if you're one of those teams, no no big deal. But teams make mistakes. Teams make mistakes. So one team that traded their first-round pick in the 2020 2020- and uh, 2022 NHL Entry Draft actually ranks 31st in the NHL or 32nd in the NHL, and it's the Montreal Canadiens. They traded a first-round pick. Now, granted, uh, it had some conditions on it, but they traded their first-round pick to Arizona after losing Yesberry Kokaniemi. Effectively, they traded the Hurricanes' as first um, first-round pick. But nonetheless, that Montreal Canadiens team was so uncertain about who they were that they dealt a first-round pick. For Christian Dvorak. Christian Dvorak, man. Like, my goodness. Christian Dvorak. They traded a first-round pick for him. This Montreal Canadian team. In this economy. Just absurd. The Chicago Blackhawks similarly parted ways with a 2022 first-round pick. That, first of all, they're going to have great lottery odds on. And secondly, if they win one of the two drawings this year. Confers to the Connor Bedard draft year with Adam Fentelli, with Mika Michkov. Like, three outrageously good prospects. Guys who've been famous since they were 15. The types of generational talents that become franchise players. They traded a first-round pick with those conditions on it for Seth Jones, and they're not going to make the playoffs this year, and they're not going to make the playoffs next year. Like, that is maybe the best asset in hockey that the Columbus Blue Jackets own. That's what the Canucks should be after. They should be looking for Montreal. They should be looking for... The next Chicago, they should be looking for the next team that doesn't know who they are and is willing to part with a high-value pick uh, in exchange to load up now. And and ideally, you sort of kick it down the road. You set up conditions so that the pick might defer. Take the home run cut. That's what this team needs. This team needs something pretty special right now if they're going to get back on track. That's the number one asset that I think you have to be after. And, and the Tyler Toffoli deal... Really reminded me of this, although a lot of people also um, have been noting that the and this is from Adam Kierzenblatt, who, by the way, is a Botchford um, Project fellow who will be working the game on the 19th. So this weekend is the Bochford Project. Uh, look forward to working with Adam, but answering his question in the meantime, will the Toffoli deal increase the price for Miller? Well, I don't know that it's a huge price. Right, here's the thing. It's 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 a prospect, but it's not one of the Flames' top prospects. We're not talking about Jacob Peluche here, right? It's a player, but it's Tyler Pitlick. That's kind of more a make the money work type of player inclusion as opposed to a player with real value. And it's a first round pick, sure, but it, it and it's a protected first round pick that could confer that part. I like because it sort of sets the market. In a a way that actually benefits the Canucks and sort of points the entire marketplace toward the type of pick that I think the Canucks should be prioritizing in any deal for one of their big ticket players um, over the next five weeks. So what's the impact of the Toffoli trade on JT Miller's price? I don't think it's significant because while the Toffoli return is good for the Calgary Flames... Uh, or or sorry, for the Montreal Canadiens who sold uh, Tyler Toffoli, I think it's a lot lower than what the Canucks are hoping to get for J.T. Miller in the event that they go down that road. Or for a Connor Garland if they decide to go down that road. Um, you know, I certainly think they're hoping to get uh, a return that significantly outperforms that. Uh, they should get a return that significantly outperforms that. The industry itself rates J.T. Miller more highly. Uh, I think because there's less term on JT Miller's deal, it's easier to work in to a team's cap system overall uh, or cap planning overall than Toffoli's deal is, particularly when you factor in the relative age of both players. So JT Miller is going to have a lot more trade value than Tyler Toffoli. I don't know that the Toffoli price as a result significantly impacts the JT Miller price. The JT Miller price was always going to be higher. It's still going to be higher. But one thing it does do is set a market like the premium asset netted by the canadians in this deal was a protected first round pick that could confer unprotected and although that's unlikely based on the team that made the deal i do think that that gives the canucks some standing to ask for the type of pick that i think they should be targeting as the primary return in any deal they make for one of their top players anyway so i like that part of it that's the only real impact that i see there um we'll move on. I have one from CW uh excuse me, CSWC Andy. Uh loyal listener, appreciate your support Andy and we appreciate your question. He asks, do you expect we will see a besser extension by the trade deadline? I'm not sure, right? I, I reported last week that the two sides met. Um more an introductory preliminary conversation than any brass tacks, hardcore get down to business and hammer out a deal negotiation but the conversation's begun and when the conversation is begun as any hockey executive will tell you that means the negotiation has already begun no matter what the two sides tell you (laughs) you don't sit down with a player's agent on an expiring deal and not swap ideas or numbers like come on so we will have to see what shape this one takes I'm going to squirrel the question a little bit, Andy, if you'll excuse me and permit me to. Regardless of whether or not I expect we will see a Besser extension by the trade deadline, I think it would be in the Canucks' best interest to pursue exactly that course. We should see a Besser extension before the deadline, in my view. And and here's why. Because of Brock Besser's complicated qualifying offer situation, right, where the team needs to tender him a $7.5 million one-year deal in order to retain his RFA rights this summer, um, he doesn't have the type of trade value that normally a player as good, as consistent, as productive as Brock Besser would, right? Meanwhile, despite having a season in which his personal shooting percentage is way off, He's dealt with injury in the early part of the season. Um, There's a lot going on around Brock Besser, right? Um, Despite all of that, despite the bad shooting luck, he's still on pace for 50 points over 82 games. Like, he's still winning a ton of battles. He's still a fixture on PP1 at the net front. Not even necessarily in the position that he's best suited to, but cashing in uh, at the net front on, on rebound goals the way he did against Toronto. He's still top three among Canucks forwards in ice time. He's their most reliable two-way right wing, period. Period. He's the guy they want out in matchups. He wins a tons of ba- ton of battles down low. He wins a ton of battles along the wall. He's smart, right? He's a good playmaker, and he has the rare type of shot in the NHL that is... Able to beat set NHL level goaltenders. Not a lot of players who match that description. He's developed this reputation as a streaky scorer. And because he's not this like big physical hitter guy. And because he's not a burner in terms of the way he skates. People fall back on this idea that if he's not scoring he's not helping you win. And that is to completely ignore the way that Besser influences games with his overall creativity his overall ability to win battles, and his overall ability to drive play. Besser is more valuable to the Canucks on the ice than he would be as an asset in a trade. And regardless of whether or not you look at Brock Besser and say, is he part of the next Canucks, next great Canucks team? That's the test you have to apply to everybody on this roster right now. Is he part of the next great Canucks team? And regardless of what your answer is on Besser, The fact is is that the timing right now, because of his qualifying offer situation, because of his arbitration rights, because of a whole host of very inside hockey factors that diminish his trade value, make it the wrong time to really entertain dealing him. He's a guy you extend, not a guy you deal for me. And that's a no-brainer. That's a no-brainer in my view. Not sure if we'll see an extension before the deadline, but I think it should be a priority for this organization to work through. I I think that, for me, um, is a relatively clear-cut right answer. Besser is the type of guy you extend, not the type of guy you trade, at least not right now. All right. We've got other questions in. Lots of good questions. Please keep them coming on the inbox. And I'm um, I'm going to read one from Josh the Zamboni guy right now. Hey, Drancer, I hear noise about Zaka, and that's, of course, Pavel Zaka, the New York Jersey Devils forward. What are your thoughts on him, and what would he be worth in a trade? Well, if you go check out The Athletic right now, Harmon Dial and I have profiled 10 potential Canucks trade deadline targets between the ages of 20 and 25, including Pavel Zaka and also Vitali Kraftsoff, the New York Rangers forward whom The Athletic reported the Canucks Uh, were potentially interested in just last week. Now, we have heard from a variety, and I'm talking about the Athletic, and I'm talking about me and my colleague Rick Dollywall, we have heard from a ton of industry contacts around the NHL that as the Canucks entertain conversations with a variety of other people, the profile of the type of player that they keep asking about tends to fall within a 20 to 25-year-old window. Uh, 20 to 25-year-old, ideally players that have already cut their teeth in the NHL, maybe players who have fallen out of favor for, for whatever reason, whether they're a, a defected player like Kravtsov or a third-liner like Zaka with their current club, but whom the organization sees some bounce-back potential in. And so you can go read our thoughts a little bit more in depth, but the overall logic of pursuing a player like this would hinge I think on the idea that he could be with his size right with his penalty killing experience and with some offensive upside a foundation right a foundation for a player to be a long-term fit as a third line center right behind Bo Horvat behind Elias Pedersen I don't love Zaka's two-way profile when he's a center however I think he's been better When he's played on the wing. And so I sort of wonder if you're bringing in a younger Jason Dickinson with a little bit more offensive upside, as opposed to the signature third line center type player that you ideally want. There's also the added factor of Zaka's uh, contract status. He's an RFA after this year, and then is only one season away from UFA. So you'd have to be very careful in how you'd approach that negotiation because. One of the cruel truths of the hard cap era, right? Is that it's not enough to get the right player. You need to get the right player at the right time so that he's on the right contract, right? It's not enough to go out and get Blake Coleman if you're the Tampa Bay Lightning. You need to get Blake Coleman on his last contract so that he can fit onto your third line, right? Blake Coleman at 4000000 million doesn't help the Tampa Bay Lightning win a Stanley Cup. Blake Coleman at $1.8 does because then... He's not just Blake Coleman. He's also another winger and another defenseman. Right. Like that's how harsh the realities of the hard cap system are. How harsh the efficiency contest that the NHL has set up is. So the Canucks and 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 Zaka as an idea, um, you know, I'm I'm it's intriguing. It's intriguing. I like the bet more. If you're looking at it from the perspective of, and if the organization's looking at it from the perspective of, this guy's been miscast as a defensive center, and we see him more as a third line or or a third or second line power forward type, and we believe we can get a team-friendly extension done now, then I kind of like the fit. Then I see that as something that could pay dividends, particularly with his relatively unique skill set, his relatively unique frame. But I think you have to be really careful about, what you think you're getting i i I worry that this could be another dickinson type situation where the organization brings in you know a a player who in my estimation is a useful two-way piece he's just not a signature third line center he's not the he's not the linchpin pk guy and that's been a big reason why that fit hasn't worked for him through his first 50-ish canucks games to this point all right We will be back on the other side of the break. We will get to all of your questions. You are listening to the special mailbag edition of the Canucks Hour on Sportsnet 650. And we're back. It's the Canucks Hour. We're doing a special mailbag edition. I'm Thomas Drance. Jamie Dodd off for the first couple of days this week. Flying solo here. Getting into your mailbag questions as we all recover from our Super Bowl parties last night. All right. I'm going to get to one from Tanbeer. I have to do it. He's not on Twitter anymore, so he's like ninety percent less annoying these days. But still listening in. He's still texting in, and honestly, I'm misengaging with him. So I'm happy to take Tanbeer's question. It's not really a question. It's more an instruction from Tanbeer. Tanbeer says, "We want the cup." No, I'm just kidding. He says, "Tell your listeners that Demko is already better than Roberto Luongo." That's in from Tanbeer. Now, I think that this take is based off of Thatcher Demko's unflappability right like thatcher demko might as well be a cadaver that's that's the extent of the pulse he seems to have in pressure situations absolutely cold-blooded in the way he carries himself one thing i love about thatcher demko i've never seen him sell a glove save like i feel like he's never made a save for the cameras once in his career instead he waits for the whistle and just drops the puck like yeah of course i got that easy easy maybe 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 shoot it harder and more accurately next time. He's the Barry Sanders of goalies, just (laughs) flipping the puck back to the referee. (laughs) His his whole body language, it would be so aggravating to to be facing him on a night when he's dialed in. You know, I I honestly feel like that every time I watch him play. Then he talks to the media after games. And pro tip for those of you who only see Thatcher Demko um, through interviews, right? Through those Zoom interviews that he does. If you get Thatcher Demko one-on-one, he's a really engaging guy. Um, but post-game, I think he's pretty, you know, I think he's still in that mindset. So he doesn't give you a lot post-game. He's a very difficult interview in that environment, no matter how well he's played. And so it's an interesting dynamic there overall, but I think that way of carrying himself in contrast with Luongo and and the more passionate personality and the and the legacy of what happened in, in playoff defeats numerous times for the Canucks uh has caused people to some somewhat have this take. But let me let me just get to the facts here, right? Luongo's the first ballot Hall of Famer. He's one of the top three or four goaltenders to ever play the game. He has fifteen start seasons as a starter in his career in which he managed a save percentage better in a single season than Thatcher as Demko has managed to this point in his 107 game career, which is 914. Demko currently has a 921 save percentage this year and is on pace to start 62 games. That would be remarkable if he accomplishes it. And yet, should he play 62 games and maintain his current 921 save percentage for another 20, 25 games, right? He'll manage a season so remarkable. It would rank as Luongo's fifth best in his career as a workhorse starter. Tanbeer, I'm sorry, man. Stop it. Stop it. All right. We've got a question in Roberto's recapture. We'll do the the Luongo corner here. Roberto's recapture pit is done this year, isn't it? This is from an unsigned texter, by the way. That should help, shouldn't it, From from a cap perspective? Well, unfortunately, not necessarily because the Canucks have... Braden Holtby's 2.5 million dollar buyout still on the books, plus Jake Vertanen's 50k buyout cap hit from this year jumps to 500k next year. So, right there, you've basically locked in and punted the Luongo recapture hit a year down the line. Throw in the potential bonus overage from Thatcher Demko or sorry, from Yaroslav Halak, that could be an additional 1.5 million, and effectively the cap benefit of the recapture penalty expiring, and it's an absurd penalty. But the benefit of that expiring recapture hit may ultimately, may ultimately um, result in them sort of just not having additional flexibility next year. Uh, The cap will go up 1 million, but unless something changes with Halak, they still project to have a fair bit of dead space that they'll have to hurdle past another year. And to make matters worse, of course, Holtby, whose deal needed to be bought out, signed for roughly the same cap hit. Uh, as Tyler Toffoli, who just netted his team, a conditional first and an additional prospect and an additional draft pick. So tough, 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 tough. Um, Had a question on Twitter that I wanted to get to because I think it's an interesting one and and also perhaps has a counterintuitive overall take. The way that I see it, all right, the way that I see it, it's about... The Sedins. And I want to quickly... While we're, while we're doing the legacy tour of the uh, 2011 team, right? Lots of low go questions. We've got a Sedine question in here. And it's regarding the construction of the front office. And whether or not the twins are still seen as the heirs apparent. All right. Why is... Here's the question. Why... Are we only hearing from Jim Rutherford? Why is his general manager muzzled and his four assistant general managers? Similarly, we haven't heard from them. There's only three at the moment, but I wouldn't be shocked if there's a fourth eventually. Uh, is he the only spokesperson other than Bruce? And what about the city and twins? Are they, you know, only window dressing. This is from Benny from Abbey. Now, it's going to be really interesting to see how this front office evolves from a communication standpoint with local media and with national media too. Um, currently, currently, Jim Rutherford has done the lion's share of the talking, but I do expect that we'll hear more from Patrick Alvine as he grows more comfortable in the big chair. Now, to this point, when the Canucks have rolled out their new personnel... Right. Cami Granado has done a wide range of media interviews. She was available over Zoom. Um, similarly, Emily Castongue was available on Zoom and did a wide range of media interviews, including on this station, one-on-one interviews. Uh, Derek Clancy has been available. He's He did a lengthy one-on-one with The Athletic. Um, I think as this organization and as this front office begins to get more comfortable in their new roles, as they figure out how to work together, I I suspect you will see a wide array of spokespeople emerge depending on what the situation calls for. But, you know, Jim Rutherford's been around a long time. Jim Rutherford has always dealt with media in a way that has him, you know, carrying one of the best reputations in terms of, you know, general managers or, or hockey operations leaders to deal with in this entire business. And if you have that asset, if you have a guy who's immediately... Um, on his introduction to Vancouver seen as this calming presence, as this presence that can restore confidence in the marketplace, why would you not lean into it? As for the Sedin twins, you know, I do think that they're trying to just do the work, right? I mean, it's one thing for every move to have like the Sedin stamp of approval, right? Because we all know how much regard this market has for them. But from their perspective, it's more important to do the work, to keep your head down, to to be on the team to learn the business. And, and I think that's sort of why they're not trotted out as, as key spokespersons. They're not there to be ornamental, right? They're not. And so I think that sort of explains the evolution of the strategy, but ultimately I do think you're going to need to get to a point where, you know, this front office explains things a little bit more, right? Like where they are proactive in explaining their moves Uh, in the latter stages of the Jim Benning era. I think, That front office got to a point where they were well-oiled in that regard, um, where their moves were explained, where things were, you know, shared in, in a targeted and strategic way, in a way that actually helped the moves look better over time than they did in the first part of Benning's tenure before, perhaps, they had the types of lieutenants and functionaries who were empowered to help explain exactly what the organization was thinking. And so I do think that's going to be a challenge and a learning process as we get through here. I had one question that was sort of an insult, but I still want to get to it. Um, How does it feel? Unsigned text asks when someone outside this market breaks a trade rumor, do you still feel like an insider? Well, you never like to be beat because you're competitive, obviously in this business, but you know, It's amazing when you get to watch the likes of Elliot Friedman and Pierre Lebrun, my teammate at The Athletic Work, right? Like, these people are really, really good at their jobs. You you aren't in a position like they are for no reason. You know, I remember one of my very first games with a media pass. It was a preseason game in Toronto, and I was working for the Sporting News. And Phil Kessel um, was attacked effectively by John Scott, who tried to fight him. You'll remember the... Uh, highlight of Phil Kessel sort of running away and hacking at uh, John Scott's knee like he was a lumberjack. Um, And during the melee, in the preseason opener for the Toronto Maple Leafs that year, David Clarkson left the bench and was thus automatically suspended for the first 10 games of his Maple Leafs tenure following his signing a mega, mega contract with the Maple Leafs, which of course aged very poorly indeed. Only one reporter in the building noticed it that night right off the bat right immediately knew that david clarkson had been um uh, like had departed the bench only one guy had his eye on that detail and it was chris johnson's Uh, chris johnson was all over it and then i remember we go down and david clarkson's doing the post-game interview and chris johnson asks the first question and i'm sitting there and i'm like i don't need to record this because i'm not Covering this story, so I'm going to be the first to tweet it for sure. And David Clarkson gives his answer, and, and Chris Johnson's standing there with a broadcast microphone and his phone in the other hand. He asked the question himself, and then he beat me as a rookie reporter to tweeting out the quote. Even though he was multitasking, these guys are really good. Like they're really good. They know a lot of people. They have deep contacts. Um, you want to beat them, but are you mad when you don't know? You just try again. When you can get a scoop or two in this business. It feels good. Like it's hard. It's really not easy to earn that type of trust to do your job at that level. And so, I'm never upset when I get beat about um, when I get beat by one of the best in the business. So you, you just tip your cap and you try and get the next one. Um, at the end of the day, insider is a is a term used to market personalities. It's not something you think of yourself as. You just try to tell stories. You just try and do your best to cover the team. And within that, you are competitive. You want to tell the best story. You want to have the news fastest. You want to get the scoops. But, you know, while you're competitive about it, it's never something where you feel like you took a beat. You know, you don't feel beaten when someone who's really good at their job does a good job you just sort of are happy for it and then you, and then you twist it and have your own take on it and move forward and, and do the work. And that's sort of how this works in the job itself. Um, you know, the, the, the competition stuff, the Shams versus Woj, <laughs> um, that stuff's for, for fans and, and it's fun. I mean, that's good. It's uh, it's wrestling stuff, but it's not, it's not a real thing that colors how you think about yourself within this, uh, within this line of work. All right. Drew from White Rock asks, is there not any value in Michael Furlan's LTIR contract? It's an interesting question. Here's the long and the short of it. In order to acquire a contract that another team has on LTI, you typically have to have the space to acquire it when it's not on LTI for, for you. So you need to have three and a half million in space and then put it on LTI and then benefit from the sort of cap proceeds. So... It's not as simple as taking that deal on and then being allowed to exceed the cap because you've got Furlan's LTI deal on your books, the way it is in the offseason, in-season. It's more complicated to make that type of acquisition if you're a cap team in-season. As a result, the Furlan contract is the sort of deal that, while the the contract does have some value, a la Brent Seabrook for Tyler Johnson, we saw that deal in the offseason... Um, it doesn't carry value in season. It's not the type of move that you can make in season. And I saw another one come in about Brandon Sutter's deal, and it's kind of the same thing, although Brandon Sutter's deal is expiring. Boudreaux, of course, said he didn't expect Sutter to play this season. You hate to hear it. You hate to see the way that things have gone for him since the uh, COVID outbreak for the Canucks, uh, particularly because he never had a chance to be a player in this market who was just recognized for being a hardworking, smart, defensive guy doing the yeoman's work. He was always seen as his contract value. He had a real opportunity this season to change the narrative around him. You just hate to see how it's gone down there. Um, But from a trade value perspective, because of the mechanics of how it works for another team to assume an LTI deal, those are not deals that make sense in season. All right. I've got a, a good one. Luongo is not a top five goalie of all time. Fundamentally, says <laughs> an unsigned texter. I, I mean, go find, uh, go find, go find and make the case for other people in terms of the win totals, in terms of the longevity, uh, in terms of the consistency. You know, it's Brodeur, it's Wah, it's probably Marc Andre Fleury now, um, it's probably Langfest, and it's probably Luongo. And I know they're all modern era guys, but. The, oh, sorry. Did I not mention Hashik? Excuse me. Hashik is definitely number one. Hashik's prime is actually more comparable to Lemieux and Gretzky's, in my opinion, than it is to the other guys. So, Hasek, Brodeur, uh, Wah, and then Lundqvist, Luongo. That's my five. I'm sticking to it. All, all relatively modern guys, but that's for a reason. Goaltenders began to win the war against shooters in about 1985, since the advent of the butterfly. And that's accelerated... Um, but now goalies are so impactful. So I have no problem, uh, giving the top five, uh, all within the last sort of, um, little bit. All right. Let's see. They're getting, we're getting a lot of questions. I just want to thank everybody for contributing and helping us, uh, today. The, I'm a little overwhelmed. I've got one from Adrian J. Hogg on Twitter. He asks, Star Trek or Star Wars? I'm a Star Wars guy. I didn't really ever watch Star Trek, though. I liked some of the movies, but uh, but I'm a Star Wars guy, 100%. Um, I, I haven't really kept up with the Disney Plus stuff, but um, big Star Wars guy. Definitely Star Wars over Star Trek. Uh, I'm sure that surprises people, considering my reputation is a massive nerd. Uh, but so it goes. The other questions we have... Oh, here's a good one from Justin Liu. With Shen playing so well with... Quinn Hughes is it reasonable to look for a second third pair right hand D to shore up the defense or should the Canucks still be looking for a more optimal partner for Hughes so really good right handed defensemen are like the hardest thing to find (laughs) other than a top line centerman a top four right handed defenseman is very very difficult to acquire and and pricey when they become available now you can obviously gamble on some guys and, and find some guys who are capable of doing the work. Uh, Jim Rutherford's Pittsburgh Penguins won a Stanley Cup with Ron Hainsey as their number one guy on the right side. And he's a lefty, and he was like 34, and he he was almost out of the league two years before. So I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's really hard. And the fact that Quinn Hughes needs a specific type of player and can elevate that type of player, right? And what I mean by this is, if you have a more defensively calibrated player to put with Hughes, right, you can trust that any limitations they might have in terms of foot speed and ability to move the puck will be covered up to some extent by the way that Hughes is so puck dominant for a defenseman. And there's real opportunities that I think could arise from that, from a Canucks perspective over the course of Hughes's Canucks career. Uh, one is that you can definitely maybe especially while he's playing more of a second-pair role as opposed to a first-pair role. Right now, Tyler Myers is Canucks' number one defenseman by ice time with a bullet, uh, especially while that's the case. I do think you can maybe afford to be super efficient in that spot within a cap system, within the hard cap system, and still hold your own while not spending a ton of money in that role. Uh, that's, a, that's a role on a roster where typically you're paying $5 million. And if the Canucks can reliably find contributors there at one, one and a half million, I think that's all upside for, for this team. Obviously, eventually you'd love to see Quinn Hughes play with the perfect fit. I've always been pretty uh, consistent saying that my idea of the perfect Quinn Hughes defense partner is Aaron Eckblad, but you know who you're not acquiring Aaron Eckblad. So um, who who really cares what I think I've got another question here asking about John Klingberg. Um, It notes incorrectly, however, in wondering about the Klingberg fit for the Canucks, if Klingberg is um, an RFA after this year, he's not, he's a UFA and he's going to be really expensive and he's going to be 30 and he makes zero sense for this team, unfortunately, despite the fact that he's a horse, like a really good player back there, in my opinion. So one thing though, that I'd love to see the Canucks eventually do is target some of those player types, target some of those big bodied righties that can perhaps learn the game whether it's through the draft or through college free agents or through European free agents, because if you can hit a relatively attainable baseline level of effectiveness and play minutes with Quinn Hughes, I'd be curious to see what you could do over multiple seasons to one of those assets trade value. Right. The guy in my mind for this is like, what would Brandon Carlo's trade value be? If he came into the league and played two years with Quinn Hughes, would people think he was just this absolute stud top pair guy? Like, maybe, maybe. Could you trade a four as if he were a two in a world where you got the right guy to build with Quinn Hughes? Because that's the sort of always netting value type move that I'd love to see this organization capitalize on and make. Um, It would just be a ton of fun to watch the Canucks utilize Hughes' elite skills in that manner. Here's one from Linus K. Freeman, and I think this is the last one we have time to get to. He asks, what do you think about the rumored return of a New York Rangers-Miller trade? And I believe he's referring to my colleague Arthur Staples' article in The Athletic today, what we're hearing about JT Miller, uh, Vitali Kratsov, and the Rangers ahead of the trade deadline. He also asks for my thoughts on Nils Lundqvist. So I believe, basically, that the Canucks want the three-asset approach to uh, any potential deal with the Rangers, and and ideally more. Three to four assets, right? That's been how their trade posture has been described for a long time, and I think that ask is significant. Certainly, you're looking at a first. Certainly, you're looking at another really good prospect. I know people have visions of Lafreniere dancing in their heads, but come on, (laughs) they're not moving Lafreniere. I don't think anyway. I know people also have visions of Braden Schneider and Andre Miller was the guy we included in our article at The Athletic uh, today. And I'm sure the Canucks love those players, but I also think those guys might be unrealistic in terms of how attainable they might be in a potential deal um, with JT Miller going the other way. So, what would a potential return with the New York Rangers look like? For me, I think it would be... It would have to start at a first. Has to. Absolutely has to. That's the key asset. One of their defensemen, and they have four, in my estimation, that are that are pretty good future NHL-level players. One is Nils Lundqvist. He's my least favorite of the four. Another is Zach Jones. He might be the best of the guys that I actually think you could get. And then, obviously, Ke'Andre Miller and Braden Schneider. And I think both of those guys are probably... Uh, you know, outside the realm of, 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 of a price that the Rangers would actually pay. And then you get to some of the uh, depth prospects in the organization and among them, you know, a relatively recent first round pick like Vitaly Kratsov, who sort of defected from the organization in the last year of his entry level deal. He would seem to stand out as a guy that the Canucks may have interest in um, and, and, and may actually get value in, especially if he's a tertiary piece in a potential military. So that was that would be sort of how I'd handicap that one. For me, I would think it was a big win if the Canucks were able to get, say, a first, an additional draft pick, uh, Zach Jones and Kratsov. I would say that's a, a pretty good return all told in the event that they decide to go that way. But I know that with how good JT Miller has been in Vancouver, with how attached this market has become to it, I suspect the public reaction to such a trade would be cool in the event that the Canucks were to pull the trigger on on something like that. However, you know, in a hard-capped league, again, you have to factor in the opportunity that you'd gain by freeing up the cap space that Miller is attached to through this season and through next Um, particularly with where the Canucks are at in their team-building cycle. All right, that does it for the Canucks Hour. Thank you for listening to this special mailbag episode. I'll be back tomorrow again sans Jamie. Uh, We've got some big plans uh, for tomorrow's show, so tune in at noon. You've been listening to the Canucks Hour on Sportsnet 650.